The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Yes. And today we are pleased to welcome the award-winning writer, cultural critic, and historian, Dr. Tanisha C. Ford to the show. And Yay! yay. Cass, <laughs> Cass, Cass has been a huge fan of hers for a long time. And uh, Dr. Ford is a professor of history at the City University of New York's Graduate Center, where she teaches courses that center around the social and cultural histories of Black women. And these are also the stories and histories that she centers in her own work, which consists of numerous published articles and three books. 2015 saw the publication of her first book, Liberated Threads, Black Women, Style, and the Politics of Global Soul. And then in 2019, um, that year witnessed the publication of not one, but two of her books. Her memoir, Dressed in Dreams, A Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion, and also Kwame Brathwaite, Black is Beautiful. And the latter was an exhibition catalog co-authored with Deb Willis. All three of which she is here to discuss with us. And not one, but two episodes. I'm super excited. As you know, April, Tanisha is a historian that I've had on my wish list of guests since probably the first season of Dressed. And today we're really going to focus on Liberated Threads, which has been on my bookshelf for years. I mean, talk about a feat of scholarship and research and also just a wonderful, she's such a wonderful storyteller. And I know our listeners are really going to enjoy this discussion today because it focuses on dressing as an empowering and political act. And this is something we've, of course, discussed on the show before, but not through this particular lens, because Tanisha really explores the intersections of Black women, fashion, and activism, not just in America, but in Europe and apartheid South Africa. She's really writing Black women into history in profound and powerful ways. Which is why we are so, so pleased to welcome Tanisha to the show. Tanisha, welcome to Dress. It is such a pleasure and an honor to have you here with us today. I'm so excited for our talk. Yes, me too. Thanks for having me, Cassidy. So your work centers around the power and importance of fashion within the Black community historically and today. Fashion can be something that's very political, as you demonstrate in your 2015 book, Liberated Threads, Black Women's Style, and the Global Politics of Soul. But it can also be very personal, as you've written in your recently released memoir, Dressed in Dreams, A Black Girl's Letter to the Power of Fashion. And while on the surface, these texts might feel like two different types of books, you know, one's historical, it's archive researched, and then the other is this wonderful memoir that's based on your personal experience. 
I mean, they are actually quite intimately intertwined in many wonderful, wonderful ways. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the inspiration about each of these books. Yes, I'm so glad that you can see how connected the two books are and that they really grow out of a similar passion to understand the everyday politics of Black life in America. And I thought, what better way to do that than to look at why we get dressed and how we get dressed and what we wear. I mean, there's nothing more, you know, every day than putting on clothes, you know, Uh, although maybe under quarantine, (laughs) (laughs) getting dressed has looked a little bit different. But I wanted to study those politics. And um, as a graduate student, I started to think about dress and I was trained as a historian. So that work was definitely deeply archival. And I love being able to look through old magazines and newspapers and to interview people who are coming of age in the 60s and 70s and hearing them talk about what they wore and why they wore it and where they purchased it. And I found that once I started doing talks on that book, once that research was finished and I had defended the dissertation and I published Liberated Threads as a book, I started to give these talks and people love to tell me about their own stories getting dressed. And I was like, wow, okay. I was looking at this more in terms of the big P politics or like the collective politics and how getting dressed was a part of a movement for change, uh, social change and empowerment. But these everyday stories of getting dressed that people love to tell me when I'm on the road with this book, I think that that means there's something that's a little bit more personal or small p politics that I can explore. And that's where Dressed in Dreams just became this fun book to think about the everyday little p politics, the personal choices that we make around our clothes that aren't necessarily part of some large collective movement, but that are so deeply personal and political to us. And what I didn't realize when I first pitched that book idea uh, was that my editor would want it to be about me and my stories getting (laughs) dressed. (laughs) So I went from researcher to subject of my own memoir, right? And that was a bizarre experience at first because, of course, as a historian, we're trained that we're supposed to be objective, that we're supposed to have some kind of distance from our subjects. Now, I don't believe that that's possible, and I don't think that historians are objective, but that's supposed to be... It's one of the great myths of history, (laughs) right? Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, but here I was now layering my own story on top of the history that I had been studying by that point for a decade about dress and the dress body and the social politics and um, the cultural politics of black communities in the United States. So yeah, they're both passion projects, but they just pull on different parts of me and my brain as a thinker and my experiences as a woman. Yeah, and congratulations too, because I think it was just announced maybe a couple months ago that Dressed in Dreams is being adapted for a television series, which is just incredible. 
Thank you. Yes, it was <laughs> just recently announced. <laughs> and um, it was one of those moments where uh, when I saw that the announcement had uh, gone out, I had to rush and tell friends, you know, and, and close colleagues and mentors like, oh, just to let you know, this thing, this amazing thing happened because while we were, you know, working through it, all the details of everything, I didn't say anything to anyone yeah. beyond my parents. So <laughs> I didn't like rush to try to tell people the good news so they could hear it from me first. Yeah, it's it's such an incredible accomplishment. I'm, I can't wait to check it out. And so we're going to start with uh, Liberated Threads today. And you really write in the introduction, you really talk about how your goal was to bridge the gap between fashion studies and civil rights histories, because the story you tell in this book is not a story that's really been told. And in, it centers around women and specifically women activists. And you're essentially writing many of these women back into history who have been erased or forgotten or just not really studied in this really important way. So Liberated Threads really centers around women. As I said, it's this transnational history of the Black freedom struggle of the 60s and 70s, a period of incredible social upheaval regarding Black men and women's civil rights, not just in America, but across the African diaspora. But unlike many historical narratives on the topic, your work focuses specifically on what you call embodied activism. In other words, you focus on illuminating the ways in which women activists used quote-unquote soul style to make powerful political statements about their identities. And uh, now that you've said small p and big P, both of those politics are very much in this book. But they're making these political statements in regards to race, gender, sexuality, so can you start by defining soul style for us, for those of us who might not know what that is, and who are some of its earliest and most influential originators? Well, you actually have addressed so many important things in that one question. And to get at the heart of the first question about soul style, and this was a language I grew up hearing, you know, um, whether it be from TV shows like Soul Train, Soul Glow, which was the, the hair activator in Coming to America, James Brown's I Got Soul and I'm Super Bad, you know? Um, so I heard this language all the time as a kid. And, and it seemed to me that people were speaking to Black men and women who wore afros and bell bottoms and maybe they wore black leather jackets and berets. Like there was a kind of spirit of, of pride and unapologetic blackness in the 1970s. And I was curious about this thing. You know, my mom used to call herself a soul sister and she and her friends from college would refer to each other in those ways. So when I started doing research for this book, Liberated Threads, I then started to trace every time in the archive I saw people use this language of soul. I started reading literature from that time period and theory by people like Amiri Baraka um, and, and who are theorizing about this word soul. So I started to piece those things together and I realized that this was a language that had different meanings for people within the African-American community, but also in the global Black community, that they were using this to uh, as a stand-in for Black consciousness to mean that, you know, Blackness was at the forefront of their thinking and the way they saw themselves. It was a way to make a connection to their African roots. So to say, I am proud to be African 
you know, by by blood, you know, if not by national origin. I am proud of that fact. Um, I don't want to embrace a European or Eurocentric idea of self. I want to embrace my roots and my heritage. Um, and it also became a way to talk about Black cool. Like, what what is it about Black culture that is always cool, you know? And so soul became a way to, to signify cool. And I think people like James Brown personified that. But it was women like Nina Simone and Odetta and Mary McCabe, who, of course, are performing in this jazz and folk music space in the early 1960s, wearing their hair natural, wearing African-inspired garments, who really, for me, became visual representations of this idea of soul style. So I wanted to chart how they embraced that style but then also how they influenced a whole generation of Black women to see themselves through this idea of soul style. And I started to see that soul meant something in particular in the U.S. context, but in, in the British context and in the South African context, oftentimes it had a slightly different meaning. And so I wanted to interrogate very closely what those meanings were and how they differed in order to paint a picture of the African diaspora that was, yes, one of unity on one hand, but to also show the, the disconnects and the kind of political disagreements or the ways that um, different national contexts shaped what blackness looked like or what people thought of when they when they heard the word black or how they embraced it to show that African diasporic subjects are not a monolith, that this is a, a diverse political and cultural community, if you will, but that they still were trying to think collectively to gain greater freedoms for all. Right. And this is very much, you tell this incredible transnational story, like you're in all these different places. I mean, really in America, then like you said, you go to London, you're in um, South Africa. And so more than clothing, hair is really central to your discussion of the politics of style of the 60s and 70s. And it's, like I just said, it's not in just in America, but also the freedom struggle that is taking place in places like apartheid South Africa. For a Black woman during these periods to wear her natural hair was very much this political act, or at the very least, it was interpreted as a transgressive act of self-expression. Why was this perceived as such a radical statement and can you give us a few examples of the women who use their hair as an expression of their embodied activism? Hair. Uh, it is always a sensitive topic in the Black community. And it's because hair from very early on in the various points of contact between European colonizers and people of African descent, hair became a marker of racial difference. So this idea that the darker races uh, had kinkier hair texture, that the, the follicles that grew out of their scalp looked different, and so therefore that meant that they were somehow different, less human, if human at all, right? So there is this way that, you know, 
pseudoscience developed to, to create these differences between people of different quote unquote races. Of course, we know this is all socially constructed. And so hair became a part of that social construction. Um, and it also became a way to punish enslaved Black women for minor acts of transgression against this very regimented, exploitative system of slavery. So if you stepped outside of some boundary on a plantation, for example, um, you could have your hair shaved off. And of course, for um, many women, hair was a marker of femininity. No matter what the texture was, having you know longer hair was a sign of femininity. So to have that hair shaved off against your will, that was a humiliating form of punishment. So you, on the one hand, have hair as, a, as this marker of so-called racial difference, and then you also have hair as a, a way to punish. And so this, the hair became, you know, this sensitive material, if you will, but also a place that was the possibility for all sorts of forms of expression, self-expression, be it hair braiding, hair beading. In, in ancient African cultures, it's believed that they wore gold in their hair and other forms of adornment, cowrie shells. So what we see then in the period that I'm studying is Black women saying, hey, we want to go back to those pre-colonial days when we had a sense of pride around our hair, when we had total self-control over our hair and how it was styled and how we adorned it. And we want to go back and reclaim many of those pre-colonial hairstyles, both real and hairstyles that we imagined African women would have been wearing. And so you see this beautiful resurgence in natural hair, but it's slow going at first, because of course, by the time we get to the early and mid 20th century, the standard for black women is wearing their hair straightened. It's wearing their hair longer. So you had to, push past all those years of social conditioning around wearing one's hair straightened in order to wear your hair natural. And in the early days, some of the women whose stories I read in magazines like um, Negro Digest mentioned how members of their own communities would look at them and say, oh, why would you want to do that to your hair? You look like a boy. You know, beauticians wouldn't even style their hair for them. So they had to either go to male barbers or some black women like Black Rose, who was a member of the Grandassa Models learned how to do their own barbering and so they could cut other black women's natural hair. And so those early adapters, again, some of them were fashion models like the Grandassa models who were doing this more grassroots uh, modeling. They were members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee like Joyce Ladner. Um, they were singers, again, like Nina Simone, Miriam McCabe Odetta, uh, who were wearing their hair in these short cropped styles. Nina Simone actually went natural well before she publicly wore her hair natural. So she was still wearing straight haired wigs for years before she let people see that she had been wearing her hair natural underneath those wigs. But again, like this was a, a bold choice. And so it isn't really until the early 1970s that Afros become commonplace. 
and they become the symbol of soul style and the, the symbol of black pride and black power. But in those early years, I was really fascinated by the black women who were bold enough to buck some of those long held beauty traditions in order to pave a new way or a new form of self-expression, one in which they embraced the hair as it grew out of their head. Something that you you talk about a lot in the book, too, that's really fascinating, and again, not just in America, but in South Africa, is the respectability politics and this idea of these white normative beauty standards, right? So that modern beauty culture essentially becomes associated with white beauty standards, so straight hair, um, light skin, and you don't just see that in America, but also in, in South Africa, where there's this like forced uniformity during apartheid. So there's this incredible historical legacy of these beauty standards that these women in the 60s and 70s are like pushing against. So it's this incredibly powerful statement that's rooted with all this history. And our listeners are just going to have to read your book to learn more about it. because There's so much there to unpack. It's, it's so, so interesting and important. Yeah, especially in the South African context, as you mentioned, the South African context, because you know, under apartheid, I mean, I think that in the United States, we don't really understand enough about that history and what it meant to live under apartheid. And so one of the things that happened was that they forced even young black schoolgirls, um, black South African schoolgirls, they forced them to shave off their hair uh, because their braids were um, markers of their ethnic identities. So if you were Zulu, you know, you might wear your hair in certain braided patterns. If you were a family of nobility or royalty, you, you might wear certain styles. And so what they wanted to do was erase all of those, you know, cultural, ethnic markers of identity. And so they would make them shave their hair and create this very uniform look the very closely cropped style that Miriam McKeba wore her hair in in the 1950s when she emerged on the global music scene, that's an, that's an example of the kind of styles that, that they would cut these young girls' hair into. And I think that it was really important for me to incorporate that history as well, because when we see it from the U.S. context, there's a certain piece of it we understand when we think about U.S. slavery. But to understand how it functioned in the South African context adds a whole other layer to that rich history around hair and then why it becomes so monumental in the South African context that women are then making a choice to wear their hair natural. So it's not that they hadn't ever seen natural hairstyles or that everyone there was wearing their hair straightened their entire lives. But it's also that what does it mean to embrace this hair now as a very deliberate political decision? So I definitely wanted to talk about that. But I also, too, wanted to explore this idea of Black women wearing their hair in straightened styles as a way to conform to European beauty. I think that that becomes a, a very easy or oversimplified way to mm -hmm. explain it. Because really, it, it's not just that Black women are wanting to look white, which is how that gets oversimplified oftentimes when we say, you know, adhering to European beauty standards, right? It, it sounds like, oh, Black women wanted to look white because white was the, you know, white beauty standards were the normative or prevailing beauty standards. And while 
some of that is true. If you look at the global beauty markets in those time periods, there was definitely a, an aesthetic of beauty that was being sold to women of all races. But also, we're talking about hundreds of years of hairstyling. And so what that means is that particularly because Black people are living uh, oftentimes in segregated communities, it means that, that white women aren't their everyday touch points for beauty and style anyway. It means that Black people are creating their own cultural and beauty ecosystems, their own ideas around hair grooming and beauty that, yes, understand what's happening in the rest of the world as it relates to beauty, but when you're looking to style out or when you're looking to wear the latest hairstyle, you're not necessarily looking to, you know, some white woman on uh, in a moving picture. You know, you are looking to the woman who lives down the block, right. <laughs> you know, you're, you're trying to, you know, one up her, you're trying to outdo her or emulate her. And so I like to be very clear about that fact that black women, even when they were wearing their hair straightened or wearing them in Marcel curled bobs and all these other things, that they were doing so as a way to create their own beauty ecosystem, you know, and women like Madam C.J. Walker uh, help us to understand that. Mary Turnbull Malone also help us understand like how they're setting some of these trends. It's really important too to note that when we think about soul style, of course, we think about natural hair and the, and the styles we mostly think about are the Afro and um, cornrows and dreadlocks. But Early Black nationalist women, and I mean women like Marcus Garvey's wives, um, Amy Ashwood Garvey and um, Amy Jacques Garvey, they too were wearing their hair natural, you know, but they were just, they were wearing it usually up in some kind of, you know, um, bun or a French twist or something like that. But those women too were kind of these early adapters to this notion of wearing one's hair natural. Um, it's it's those women whom the Grand Asa models are inspired by, of course, because they are operating within a black nationalist political framework. So some of these early women who were part of Garvey's UNIA were too wearing their hair natural. We just don't have a ton of photographs of those women to see the points of reference or the kinds of styles that they were wearing. But I think it's important to note that what natural hairstyles look like for Afro-Caribbean women and African-American women definitely changed over time. So we can kind of map this long continuum from, you know, radical Black women in the early 20th century to the women I study in the late 20th century. Yeah. And so hair is obviously a big part of of your story and both of your books, actually. It's really central to, um, like you said, these identity politics, politics with a big P, Something I really love about your book is how you you just mentioned the fashion ecosystems that these communities are creating. You really talk about the importance of the beauty salon as kind of this unrecognized, important space in the civil rights movement because these women are really gathering here. This is a place where these women in these communities are gathering. Could you talk a little bit more about the beauty salon culture? Yes, beauty salon culture is essential to Black life. <laughs> And I'm really thankful to the scholarship of people like Noliwe Rooks and Tiffany Gill, who write very eloquently and powerfully about the beauty salon as a political space. Tiffany Gill's beauty shop politics in particular goes in great detail about this. And it, what it helped me to see was 
that not only was it this important homosocial space where Black women would meet to talk about all sorts of um, women's issues, you know, from where do I buy the latest, you know, dress or shoes that everybody wants to have to, you know, my husband is cheating on me, right? You saw the range of experiences. But it also became clear to me after reading the Gill book that these women um, were entrepreneurs who could use their beauty shop spaces to advance and support whatever political causes they saw fit. So as the Black Freedom Movement is coalescing and ratcheting up to another level in the 1950s, a lot of these beauty salon owners um, would have small rallies in their salons, or they would run um, voter registration drives from their salons. In the UK context, when you have um, a, you know an influx of Afro-Caribbean women migrating from places like uh, Barbados, Trinidad, Jamaica, to London and other cities across the UK, they needed places to get their hair done, you know? And so one of the ways that Black women uh, become their own business owners is by setting up beauty salons. And those beauty salons then become community hubs for new migrants. So oftentimes that the shops were sub-segregated by national identity. So here's the salon that all the Jamaican women went to. Here's the, the salon that all the Trinidadian women went to. And so you could reestablish and reconnect with community in the beauty salon. So I wanted to really honor that long tradition of the beauty salon being this very important space for Black women. Um, but I also wanted to talk about the politics of that salon in terms of how these became gathering places and hubs for Black women, and then also how they became um, opportunities for economic advancement um, for Black women. And so it was fun then to write and dress in dreams about the beauty salon and my own experiences being a Black girl, getting my hair pressed and curled in Mama Koki salon. That was the name of my my hairstylist when I was a kid. And, you know, as early as five or six, it's like a rite of passage, or at least it was back then, for Black girls to get their first pressing curl, you know? And so I can remember feeling like such a big girl going into the salon and, you know, sitting in the chair, but being so small that Mama Koki had to put a pillow on the chair so I could sit on the pillow and then she would pump, 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 you know, the hydraulic chair up. So I could see myself in the mirror and then go through what for me was a very painful process <laughs> of getting my hair <laughs> pressed out, you know. And of course, there's, you know, with this piping hot pressing comb and the oil. Oh, gosh, the things we know about hair now that we didn't know then. You should never put oil on your hair and then put a hot comb on it. It's just like what happens when you put a piece of bacon into a hot skillet. I mean, it just fries. Right. But we would, you know, you put the the pressing comb through your hair and you'd hear all this crackling and popping and, you know, ah, they burn your ear and you jump, you know, so it was this terrifying, like harrowing experience, but it was also this rite of passage that made you feel so proud once you saw the finished result. So I wanted to link all those things across the books so that when you read the two in conversation with one another, you can see just how important the beauty salon was for uh, Black women. Yeah. And and again, across both of your books, as you said, there's so many interweaving themes between both of these books. And especially when you read Liberated Threads first, uh, 
And we're going to talk about your mom in a minute. But just seeing all of these uh, interconnecting threads is really, really special about those two publications. But so I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, this embodied activism, because Part of it was racially driven and and politically driven, but it also has a lot to do with class, gender, and sexuality politics as well. How did women also transgress these societal codes through their clothing? Well, you know, definitely embodied activism, but I want to explain a little bit about how I got there. And it's because, as you mentioned earlier, liberated threads kind of bridges fashion theory and fashion studies scholarship with civil rights, Black freedom movement scholarship. Because what I realized is that there was this gap in between, right? And so in that gap, we lost so many stories because of the ways we have framed history. So in fashion theory, um, oftentimes about the garment. It's, you know, the history of the textiles, the histories of the designers, but it's not necessarily about the bodies in the garments. In the civil rights movement history, we were thinking about bodies, but we were thinking about bodies as blockades. Here are the bodies who are crossing the color line to sit at a lunch counter. Here are the people who are trying to integrate bus terminals. Here are the people who, who are being dragged and beaten as they're trying to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So we were thinking about bodies in, in that way and how you know black the black flesh was enduring all sorts of physical punishment trying to break down and push against this regime of Jim Crow segregation. So I thought like, well, what happens though when we think about why these particular people went out to participate in these very harrowing public protests, why they wore what they wore? Why did they go dressed in that way? What happens if we take all this that we know about garments and then put the garments on bodies and put the garments on bodies of folks who were actively participating in this movement. And so I then started to play around with language and embodied activism was something that seemed to make sense or capture what I was trying to explain about, you know, what we see when we put these two different bodies of scholarship together. So to me, what that meant was looking at the ways that Black women uh, non-binary femmes, uh, masculine of center Black women, like how were they making certain choices about the dress body? So I looked at everything from the women of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who were wearing denim overalls um, so that they could align themselves politically with the Southern sharecroppers whom they're helping to organize alongside in the Deep South. So adapting these clothes or adopting these clothes become a way for them to support the Southern struggle. It also becomes a very public symbol of the fact that they're rejecting the respectability politics that are supposed to be inherent to them as women who are part of the Black middle class or who are aspiring to be in the Black middle class because a lot of these activists were college students at places like um, Spelman, um, Howard University, Jackson State. Uh, Tougaloo College. And so they were really like pushing back against those class expectations. Um, And of course, they're doing that with the overalls and with the hair. I also looked at women like Olive Morris, 
who, you know, from a teenager was active in the British uh, Black Panther uh, movement. So she was part of the Black Panther Youth League and she was known for wearing her hair closely cropped and wearing what many would consider um, men's clothing, tailored suits, vests, and such. So she was uh, like the women of SNCC who are choosing to wear their hair closely cropped in these denim overalls. She too was kind of thwarting some of the politics and expectations of gendered norms. Um, so I wanted to help to use queer theory to think about this kind of gender disruption. But I also wanted to look at things like in the South African context, why is it that Black South African women are being punished even by members within their own communities for wearing miniskirts? Like, what was it about the miniskirt and what it communicated about a certain kind of sexual politic that, you know, very staunch Christians and Muslims rejected? They shunned, you know, and even in the Tanzanian context, these women could be uh, beaten and jailed for wearing miniskirts. So I wanted to look at like how uh, just wearing a miniskirt became a form of protest. So then to uh, create this global black landscape, if you will, or fashionscape, to explore like all these different choices women were making and how those choices became part and parcel to movement politics and strategies. And I think one of the best, or to me, one of the most fascinating examples of this I found was in the South African case, where like mini skirts, hot pants were also one of these garments that were seen as, you know, not at all respectable. And so you would have these college-aged women who are participating in the anti-apartheid protest, and they would come wearing their hot pants, and they had their natural hairstyles, and then they would wear stilettos. Um, and they would wear the stilettos, of course, as part of this sexualized uniform, if you will, that they were wearing, but they were also wearing them as weapons. So if the police came to brutalize them, they could take off the stiletto and use it as a weapon to defend themselves. Now that right there is embodied <laughs> activism for sure. <laughs> Yeah. And clothing as armor is a theme that comes up in both of your books, which is really interesting because I think you write that the SNCC members, you know, they really found that, and I'll quote you, that maintaining the respectable body was difficult and that being respectably clad did not protect them. And that's something that they're kind of pushing back against too, because it's like, I can be respectably clad and I can still be targeted by the police because of the color of my skin Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. 
So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So you've mentioned the Grand Assa modeling troupe a couple different times. And so a soul style spread across the African diaspora thanks to the international influence of all these women performers. It was also spread thanks to this Harlem-based modeling troupe um, whose images were circulated internationally during the 60s and 70s and whose slogan, Black is Beautiful, became this international proclamation that celebrated into the present day. So can you please introduce us to the Grandassa modeling troupe and its founder, Kwame Brathwaite, on whom you recently co-authored a wonderful book, Kwame Brathwaite, Black is Beautiful. The Grandassa models. Oh, they're so fabulous. I'm trying to remember the first time I encountered them in the archive. Um, I was a graduate student and I was doing research at the Schomburg and I told one of the archivists that, you know, I'm trying to study soul style, natural hair. And she said, oh, well, you have to see these photographs. I believe the archivist's name is Mary Yearwood. And she said, you have to see these photographs. And I looked at them and I was blown away because these were images of black women who were modeling in the early 1960s, wearing natural hair, wearing these very elaborate African inspired garments. And I just had to learn more about them. So I started keeping a record of their names. I started, you know, keeping a mental image of their faces in my head as I went along doing this research. And what I was able to piece together as I found random articles and everything from Muhammad Speaks to Liberator Magazine, of course, both of those are Black nationalist publications, was that these women were members of this troupe of young artists called the Jazz Art Society and Studios that was co-founded by 
a man named Kwame Brathwaite and his brother Elombe Brath. And they formed the, the group originally as a jazz society because they love jazz music like most young black kids and most young people, period, in, in the United States and around the world in the 1950s. But they also were connected to a Garveyite organization called the African Nationalist Pioneer Movement. And every year, the ANPM would have this natural standard of beauty, beauty pageant, and the women would compete with natural hair. But when they saw the woman who won that year's pageant, maybe a week later, her hair was no longer natural, because you had to compete with your hair natural to be in this beauty pageant. So they wondered why, and they realized that, wow, there's this whole thing around natural hair and shame around natural hair, even among Black women who are part of Black nationalist circles. Like, why is that? And so they realized that in order to answer some of those questions and address some of those issues, they had to center Black women. They, as men, they couldn't figure it out, right? And it wasn't really their their place to do so. So they formed this troop called the Grandassa Models. They recruit a bunch of local women around Harlem, many of whom did not have any modeling experience, some of whom did. Um, some of them were already activists, like uh, Black Rose, uh, who was a hairstylist and activist in Harlem. But others of them were, you know, like Kwame, the woman who went on to become Kwame Brathwaite's white, Sikolo. She was not an activist, nor was she a model. And they gave them some modeling training. And then they started performing in these fashion and variety entertainment shows in Harlem. And they recruited people like Abby Lincoln and Max Roach two very acclaimed jazz artists to MC and perform at these shows. They formed partnerships with Nina Simone, who came to one of the events. And they chronicled these naturally shows, both um, in, in the Black press of the day, particularly the radical Black press. But then once the thing became so popular, Abby Lincoln helped them take the show on the road. So they started touring down the eastern seaboard. They traveled to the Midwest and did shows in places like Detroit and Chicago. So these models were becoming the face of a grassroots effort to show to Black communities and thusly to the world that Black is beautiful. That became one of the rallying cries. And as Kwame Brathwaite became a professional photographer, parlaying the kind of grassroots photography work he was doing into a legitimate photography career, he started photographing the models and partnering with record labels like Blue Note and some of his friends who, you know, he had met jazz artists who were performing at some of the A-Jazz's early jazz shows. And he was designing their album covers. So now you have these Grandassa models on the covers of Blue Note albums. Um, he's getting booked to photograph the models for Flamingo magazine, which was a magazine that was published in the UK and distributed across the British Caribbean and West Africa. So as I'm doing, and now have these women, their faces in, in my brain as I'm doing archival research and I'm in London, I'm a dissertation fellow um, in London, and I see that's my first encounter with Flamingo magazine. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's a granddaddy <laughs> model, you know? So I start like, keeping track of all the places that I saw these women. And when I found them, you know, on the Blue Note album covers, it, I didn't even make that Blue Note piece that I just pieced together for, uh, 
you and the listeners, until I was at this conference, was again, as a graduate student in Ireland, and someone asked me, he was the one who noticed, those are all blue notes covers? Does it matter that those are all blue note covers? And I was like, wow, that's a good question. And I realized it did matter because Kwame Brathwaite had relationships with those blue note artists. And so they were very instrumental in having the artistic director of blue note records work with Kwame and Ilambe to design their album covers. So yeah, the Grandassa models are, they were everywhere in that, in the early 1960s. And like I said, your recent book is so incredible. We're going to put links, trust listeners, to all of these books, of course, in our recommended show notes so you can get your hands on these, all of these texts. So other important sites for the development of soul style throughout the 60s and 70s were American colleges. And in many ways, this is where your personal story begins because one of your greatest fashion influences is your mother, Amy Glover. She was a college student during this period at Indiana University, and she used clothing, you write, as both an expression of her identity and also, as you know, in Dressed in Dreams as an armor. So can you talk about your mother's relationship to the emergence of Black power fashion? You have so many incredible images of her in there, too, which is so fantastic. Um, Can you talk about her relationship to Black power fashion on college campuses, how it emerged in the 60s and 70s, and then her adoption of one of its most distinctive innovations, the Afro? Oh, my mom. (laughs) She is such a rebel at heart. I mean, I think that's her spirit. She has a spirit of rebellion. And so when she was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, and Black power and the Black power movement started to spread across Cleveland, it didn't take much for her to be intrigued. She loved the bold and powerful political statement that she saw members of the Black Panthers and Cleveland making, that she saw Black nationalist um, street preachers making. She loved it all. She was also a child of the 60s in that when she heard James Brown say it loud, I'm Black and I'm proud, she took that very literally. And she then stopped wearing her hair pressed and curled and started wearing it in an Afro in, in 1968 when she was just barely in high school. And she also uh, had a great appreciation for Angela Davis and her political sacrifice and her brilliance as a a political thinker um, and someone who was trying to abolish prisons and do all sorts of work to eradicate capitalism. And so my mom, just all these kind of forces came together and she was someone who knew how to sew. So a lot of the things that she saw some of her biggest influences wearing in print media and on television, she could then go make for herself. So she started what I said, stitching her own sartorial reality, you know, like taking, seeing someone like Miriam McCaba and then trying to recreate the garments that she saw Miriam McCaba wearing using whatever fabric Joanne Fabric Store had on offer. Uh, so she learned how to make her own dashikis and maxi dresses that she would use zebra print to make. And then she'd make the matching head wrap. And this is how she would dress 
herself on IU's campus. And this was huge because, you know, Indiana University is in Bloomington. We call it, you know, Bloom Tucky, or at least we did when I was there, because it's essentially the upper South, you know. And so it's a it's a small town, but it's also one that's very rural and white. And so it was a place that was very hostile to black students like my mom and particularly students like my mom who were wearing these bold African garments and natural hair. So I wanted to write about my mom as an homage to her and how she was one of this, you know, these early black women who were wearing their hair natural but then also to situate her in this important time and place on college campuses when you have this influx of African-American students who are going to college, um, the highest at that point in history, and most of them are attending predominantly white institutions like an Indiana University. And these are places that are still um, not fully integrated in the dorms and other housing options that the universities offer. So I was able to find all this rich uh, documentation in the Indiana University archives on black student-led protests against the white sororities and fraternities who had access to all these, you know, the beautiful sorority mansions on on the row. Um, They had all this housing and because of their discriminatory membership practices, they didn't have to, they didn't accept black black, uh, members. That meant that black students did not have access to any of that housing. Um, But even in the dorms, I mean, I think that they just started, just started integrating slowly IU dorms in uh, maybe a decade or a decade and a half before my mother got there. So you still have all these black students who don't have enough housing on campus. And so they're protesting, doing sit-ins on the president's lawn um, to fight for housing, you know, and that was just mind blowing to me because of course, by the time I went to Indiana University in the uh, late 1990s, housing was pretty much completely integrated, you know? but in my mom's day, that was not the case. And that was just, you know, what, a short 20, 25 years earlier or something. So I just was in awe of that fact. So it was important for me to situate her within this broader IU campus history. But then also there was so much written in the Black press. Magazines like Essence were writing about Black women's experiences and how hard it was for them to leave very segregated black communities in the urban centers that they had grown up in to go to places that were predominantly white, where they were somehow, not somehow, all of a sudden, they were undervalued, invisible, but also hyper-visible at the same time as someone who did not belong. So that to me was a rich part of the black power and soul style movement history that I felt like had not really been fully explored. So I wanted to use a very personal story uh, through my mother to illuminate that broader history. You write a couple times, you start your book with Angela Davis, and then she comes into play again in this in this chapter because she, I think your mother had a poster of her on her wall in her dorm room. And how, you know, Angela Davis was a fashion icon, obviously, to your mother and so many people. Um, she was kind of glamorized in the press. You write about that as well. But she and other women activists really showed people like your mother, and I'll quote you, how to arm themselves with words, clothing, and hairstyles to project a sense of self-confidence. So they're basically giving these young women this language, right, with which to 
project their identities to the world in a confident way in which they felt supported. And you, you have that wonderful picture of your mother and her friend in her room, and really that decorating her room in all of these ways and the way she wore her clothing was a way that she felt safe um, and part of a community. You write that your mother was actually the, a pioneer of the dashiki diaspora, bringing the radical Black consciousness it represented to the fashion challenge Fort Wayne. Uh, needless to say, soul style was very much a part of your own upbringing. Um, the very first line in Dressed in Dreams is, we were a dashiki family in a Dickies town, which is a pretty strong image <laughs> to think about. And it is with this little introduction to Tanisha's Dressed in Dreams, a Black girl's love letter to the power of fashion, that we are actually going to conclude today's episode. Tanisha will, of course, be back in two days to continue the conversation about her wonderful memoir, her love letter to fashion, that is truly a testament to the deeply personal relationships we form with not only our clothing, but with each other. And that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the political power and potential of your clothing next time you get dressed. Be sure to check out Tanisha's work at TanishaC4.com. And also, we love hearing from you, our listeners. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you'll also find images accompanying each week's episode. And you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.